Welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world. Welcome to Project Zion podcast. I'm Dean White from Bellingham, Washington. And I'm Lori Gordon from Bend, Oregon, and we are your hosts. We're members of the North American Climate Justice Team, sponsored by the Greater Pacific Northwest Mission Center of Community of Christ. And in this series, Climate Brewing, we are interviewing world-class scientists and other experts who gave presentations as part of the Community of Christ North American Climate Justice Team Zoom series titled All of Creation from Crises to Transformation. And today, we're speaking with Ashia Ajani, who led our webinar a year ago on today's topic, Poetry and Storytelling at the Intersection of Climate and Race. Ashia is a storyteller and environmental educator, born and raised in Denver, Colorado, unceded territory of the Arapaho, Cheyenne, and Ute peoples. Writing as a queer Black femme, Ashia works to preserve, interrogate, and imagine how the Black diaspora has shaped and continues to shape land stewardship in the Western Hemisphere. Ashia has been published in Sierra Magazine, Atlas and Alice Magazine, The Journal, Sage Magazine, Them.us, and The Hopper Literary Magazine, among others. Ashia released a first chapbook, We Bleed Like Mango, in October of 2017. Their debut full-length poetry collection, Heirloom, will be published in spring 2023 with Right Bloody Publishing. So Ashia, welcome. It's such an honor to be here together um, today. And um, here we are. As Dee mentioned, it's been almost a year since our original uh, webinar, which was around Valentine's Day last year. And I just find that here it is, we're coming together to consider and reconsider our love for the earth and our imperfect hope of love with each other and how that might shape a new world order. So I have to say that what struck me um, and those of us who listened to you last year was just how incredibly gracious and gentle you were with us during the webinar. You created such a tender space for those of us who gathered. You listened with such a grace to all that was offered. And so Dean and I are hoping that in this podcast, we can turn your example of patient listening presence with us completely around making a gracious space for you to speak your personal response to the flow of ideas that you um, have helped structure and that you offered to us. That said, reviewing this, the webinar and exploring your website and preparing for this conversation has been an adventure in creating more connections. It's raised a lot of questions for me. Um, I think we could have a conversation for a very long time, but here we are at that intersection between um, social and environmental justice. And um, here we are to learn from you and and uh, as you shared the wisdom of your life experiences so that we can open our eyes more deeply to the realities um, and what all of this calls from all of us as a response. So to, to start us off, I wanted to ask you about the words you use in uh, describing your work. You are, as you say, working to preserve, interrogate, and imagine how the Black diaspora has shaped and continues to shape land stewardship in the Western Hemisphere. Can you unpack that for us, particularly the intentionality behind uh, choosing those words? Absolutely. Uh, first off, Lori, Dean, thank you so much for having me. It's such a honor and a pleasure to return. Um, yeah, I chose those words. I think I'll go just kind of like word by word what each of them what each of them means to me. Um, so preserve. I put that first and foremost because I think a lot of my work is 
looking at the legacy of forgetting um, in America, um, how easily or how um, willingly, I guess, um, we ostracize and um, deny a lot of our history because it is shameful or it upsets us or it makes us uncomfortable. Um, and a lot of that history that has been especially sanitized, you know, even thinking something as like innocuously learned um, throughout grade school, middle school, high school, I think throughout the country, everybody has some idea of who Martin Luther King Jr. Um, was, but oftentimes you're presented a very sanitized version of who he was, um, doesn't talk about, you know, his support of socialism, um, those kind of social movements, doesn't talk about, um, you know, his deep ingrained like leftist sentiments, um, doesn't really talk, does a very like, uh, and I'm going to probably keep repeating this word, but a very sanitized portrayal of what nonviolence actually meant to him. Um, and so when we have that kind of dual forgetfulness and sanitation, um, of history that leads to kind of forgetfulness or this kind of false remembering, um, which is unfair, uh, I think, contemporarily, but also to the people who were idolizing. Um, it doesn't let us see them as complete human beings. Um, and so the reason that I do preserve is because I want to get as authentic of a narrative as possible, um, which means going back into those archives, but also like we are living history. Um, I just sat down a couple months ago with my, uh, how is she really, my great aunt and um, just simply asked her like, what was it like? My, most of my mom's side of the family uh, is currently in Detroit. And I was asking her like, you know, like, what was it like, like living through like the Detroit riots and the information that she told me was just so much different than if you were to just do like a basic Wikipedia search of the Detroit riots. Um, and I learned so much information. And then you just kind of sit and think and you're like, oh my gosh, like you lived through that. Um, you experienced that in real time. Um, and that impacted you. Uh, and it impacts us, you know, cause it, it you know, it titrates down. So preserve because I think that, you know, I, I think that we have a big forgetting problem um, in American, especially in our schools. Interrogate, um, I chose because I am a nosy person. I love to ask questions. I love to figure out different, you know, connections. Um, I just, I just love to ask questions and I want to know more. Um, and I think, you know, I, I want to tap beyond that kind of like surface level. I think oftentimes, especially, um, with black history, when we're starting to learn more of it, the impulse is to focus solely on the positive and that kind of paint, again, it paints an incomplete picture. So just really think about the different ways in which, Black folks operated as an oppressed group, but also kind of sometimes occasionally align their interests with the oppressors. Um, I'm talking specifically about uh, Buffalo Soldiers. That's a very complicated history, um, you know, of indigenous removal using um, uh, one oppressed group against another. Um, and so I think interrogating is also like reckoning with some of the stuff that maybe we're not so proud of, or maybe we are proud of. I think actually when you talk to a lot of people um, in the West, they're very proud of the Buffalo Soldiers. Um, and, you know, and, and so, you know, kind of navigating those tensions is really important as well. Um, I did preserve, interrogate, and the last one is imagine. Um, so again, looking at the future. Um, so what can we learn from the past in order to inform our collective future, or maybe even, you know, like it's not collective, maybe it's individual, maybe it's very regional or place-based, um, which as, you know, we talk about some of my work with Mycelium Youth Network, we're gonna be talking a lot about place-based and why that's super important. Um, but I think imagination, like it's, it's very important. I don't think that that's like a very radical thing to say, although maybe if you ask DeSantis, that he would think that that's a very radical thing to say. Um, I think if you can cultivate imagination, especially during the climate crisis, like that's super important. You have to be able to imagine something beyond what we are experiencing now. But I think in order to do that, you have to understand history and how we got to this place. Um, 
and find a way to not also like romanticize history. Um, I think that there's like this very big impulse, especially, you know, as um, colonized people, um, we we uh, romanticize sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes we romanticize like the, these pre-colonial um, societies and these notions, which I mean, I completely understand because wow, like if you look at like what um, Native Americans and, and indigenous Africans, um, like societal structure, you know, agriculture, like really, really cool stuff. Um, but I think you also have to like recognize the fact that like we can learn from those societies while also recognizing that like that that time doesn't exist anymore. Um, and so how do you kind of uh, contend with the fact that this is something that you are aching for, but also something that might not ever be returned to? Um, and how can you imagine like sort of the connections what what things do you want to pull from those um, memories and that experience into present um, to help better inform, you know, our collective uh, climate future? So that's the reason that I chose those three words. <laughs> and that role of imagination, I hope we can come back a little bit further down the road and ask you some questions about how you're imagining the future but I wanted to also recognize that you're you're teaching a class at Cal in uh, Berkeley called Introduction to 20th and 21st Century Black Environmental Literature. And I uh, was fascinated by your syllabus. And one of the things that you asked of your students was to write a short essay on how the climate crisis and your experience with and relationship to nature or environment hist history has impacted you personally, your family, your people, your homeland, or your life. And so I just wanted to say, what is your own climate narrative? How is nature grounded, or I, I don't want to be too weak. What, how, what is your climate narrative? What is your story around your relationship with nature and the natural world? Oh, um yeah i think <clears throat> this is gonna sound a little bit like a cop out i'm gonna do like the actual story the, the the story that i tell people and then i'm also gonna like kind of put an asterisk i think it has definitely evolved over time um especially because i'm someone that either because of school or because of jobs i've had to move around a lot and so i've also been thinking a lot about how migration impacts climate stories um a lot more recently than than i would have in the past but um i also want to give a shout out and give credit to um, professor and author Aya de Leon, um, who introduced to me like this concept, this this particular description of an environmental and a climate story. Um, this is something, I mean, she's also, she, she mostly does um, young adult fiction. Um, so she, this is something that uh, I had learned from her. I think of her kind of like as a mentor. She's really dope. Definitely check her out, um, especially if you have young people in your life um, who are really interested um, in very dynamic fiction. But um, so I got the idea from her, even though I've heard like different iterations of like, what is your climate story and what is your environmental story? Um, so thank you, Aya. Uh, thinking like kind of before that, my own, um, I grew up in Denver, Colorado, my entire life. Um, I do have familial ties to Mississippi and Detroit. Um, and as I was doing, you know, kind of like more family research and also just learning about history in general, um, Thinking about, again, kind of coming back to migration, forced migration, um, a lot of that migration very much was environmentally influenced. I think when we think about the Great Migration, a lot of it was talking about um, opportunities, um, like in terms of economic opportunities. Um, I think that there are two environmental aspects to that. One, if you um, cannot own the land that you're working on, um, if you are forced to grow specific crops, um, that has an environmental impact. And that's what was happening a lot in the South. A lot of Black people were getting chased off of um, land if they did own it. Um, um, a, the sharecropping system was basically kind of like slavery enduring in a lot of ways. Um, and then you have this booming industry in the North. And that's where a lot of my family went um, you know, to work in the factories, um, the motor factories. So you think that, and you are, you know, you're gaining this sort of upward mobility. But again, talking to my great aunt, uh, she had breast cancer um, and she worked on the assembly line um, at Ford. And at the specific site that she was at, 
she said that almost everybody she knew got some form of cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, if people treated and were in remission for that cancer and they came back to work, it was, it was like two years before they got another diagnosis. Um, and so again, it's like, what are you sacrificing um, in order for that upward mobility? And that was like a really painful choice that a lot of Black folks had to make um, during the Great Migration. And so I think that that's something that very much influences my climate story is understanding that history um, and understanding like why my mom wanted to leave Detroit. Um, I have mixed feelings about that. Uh, and I love Denver. I really do. But every time, you know, like, you know, it's like nice to grow up with like a big family and everything, you know, and have them around. But really, it is like kind of just me and my mom. In Denver now, I had like other family members. I had my dad. I had um, some family members in his side. But growing up in Denver, I think when people hear Denver, Colorado, especially if you are not from Colorado, especially if you are not from Denver, it's there's a very specific perception of Denver. Like you know, it's uh, even if it's not Denver, but it's like you know, Rocky Mountains. It's very like outdoor. It's very white. Um, all the things which are very true, but there is a very there was, and I think that there still is, in, in like kind of a very different way. There were a lot of booming Black towns in Colorado, and Denver had like a Black district itself, um, five points. Um, and so my environmental story, again, thinking about migration and specifically like thinking about land and land use, um, how people were constantly pushed out. And I feel like like even I'm very lucky in that my mom, um, I lived in the same home my entire you know like childhood I was very lucky in that regard because I know so many people who just could not afford um to live in Denver anymore and were constantly being pushed out because of gentrification because of like urban renewal um and that's really how I kind of got into like environment and climate work because thinking about like fragmentation of communities that's just going to continue we're seeing it happen in real time but that's just going to continue happening um as the climate crisis gets worse and as climate change gets worse um especially as like land gets more expensive. Um, I mean, we assign like value to specific like landscapes, you know, I mean, with the whole thing with like beachfront property, you know, um, not, you know, somewhat in a landlocked state, but on the coast. Um, and uh, so thinking about kind of like more so from a, yeah, like kind of like community preservation, again, that word, you know, coming back up, that that community preservation lens um, what is being lost and what can kind of like be preserved. Um, and I think memory is like a very important aspect of that. But I also wanted to like move beyond memory. Like at some point, like memory isn't enough and you need like physical, you know, like markers um, of, you know, like of community, of of, of support and of resilience. Um, and so that's kind of like where I was thinking about my climate story very much in terms of like migration, memory and um also upsetting the idea that Denver is like this very white city. It is. But I mean, like, uh, one of my friends was like, oh, I'm like, um, she's black. She's like, oh, I'm doing like this thing with Outdoor Afro. We're going to Denver. Um, and I don't like know any places to go. And I was like, listen, I got you. And she was just like, I did not like after I took this like tour that like Ashia like helped me figure out, I did not realize like how black Denver, <laughs> like, Denver was and Denver is. And I was like, that's what I'm here for. You know, so um, just being able to also, you know, like show people other you know other narratives as well well i get you're <clears throat> giving witness to another um phrase that stood out in your syllabus about the layered experiences of personal political social and ecological elements mm -hmm. make up a marginalized life that make up a, a life story in relationship to all of these issues so thank you So your webpage, um, Ashia says that you are an environmental justice educator with the Mycelium Youth Network. Ashia believes in the power of participatory action research and cultural organizing in order to adapt to and mitigate the ongoing climate crisis. Ashia believes in the transformative power and imaginations of black and brown youth to shape our ecological futures. So tell us about your work with the Mycelium Youth Network. And I love I love that name. And maybe, mm -hmm. maybe you can go into that a little bit too. Yeah. Um, so I started working with Mycelium Youth Network in January 2021. Um, I was still finishing up my master's program. And um, 
at first I started as a part-time educator and this was like when we were still doing online school. Um, so it felt very kind of like funny to be doing like environmental and ecolo ecological like education all on Zoom, but we made it work. Um, and it was super fun and, um, you know, very much like student informed and student led. And um, the reason that I kind of, that I wanted to join my Cillian Youth Network was because I was getting very, I'd worked at other nonprofits before, and I think I was getting like honestly very delusioned with a lot of their approach to um, environmental issues um, because it felt very, it felt very limiting um, and it felt very much kind of like um, reactionary and um, I think also didn't do enough due diligence to understand like the specific issues in the communities um, that they were working in. Um, and so my Silly Youth Network, um, built in Oakland, made in Oakland um, by people who are from um, Oakland or who have been in Oakland for a really long time and understand, you know, um, I mean, Oakland youth, like they're really dope. Like they're very politically involved. Like they're um, very politically aware, especially when it comes to issues of climate um, and especially when it comes to issues of environment. And it felt just kind of like a natural move to talk to students. Like, what are you most concerned about? Um, and how is it affecting your community specifically? So, for example, um, the wildfires that happened in um, 2020 where the sky turned orange, like everybody remembers that. Um, and even though, you know, like uh, these are these are students who have like grown up and, you know, each every region has their, you know, their own like natural disasters and environmental concerns. These are students that are just like very accustomed. Oh, there's wildfire season like that. That's just something that happens. In Cal it happens in California, you know, um, but you're seeing it get increasingly worse and worse and worse. Um, and so it's also that sort of the justice lens, that layered experience. Um, do you have the means to evacuate if the fires get really close? Do you have um, the um, insurance in case something like happens to your family or if something happens to your home? Um, a I don't I can't remember the exact percentage, but the good majority, a good majority of students that I work with, someone in their family or they have asthma or some kind of like respiratory problem um, that's oftentimes, uh, you know, um, unevenly distributed by uh, race and class. Um, how is that going to impact, you know, your ability to withstand um, a, a wildfire? How is it impacting your breathing? How is it impacting your health? Um, and so, you know, finding ways to make these connections with youth, then we can kind of move from, okay, we understand how this is happening. How can we move into solutions and how can we specifically move into resilience? I think that um, a lot of what I was lacking in other organizations was like the resilience aspect. Um, not to be, you know, like cynical, but like, I think a lot of people on the ground are kind of like government ain't gonna do anything. Like, you know, we saw how like Katrina, you know, like responded, like we, we see those, um, you know, those uneven um, responses depending on where you are. And if you live in like deep East, like, like, you know, like nobody's really gonna, gonna care. Like after uh, we had a bunch of rains, um, the, when I tell you the roads are tore up and there's, and they've still been tore up. Um, but like no, no, no moves have been done to like repair the roads. Um, and so you have like, pot, and you know, I, I thought the potholes in Detroit were bad, but like, once you get like um, this, like, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's why and nobody's coming to fix that. So, we're thinking about, you know, kind of like community organizing on a grassroots level, very much influenced and directed by youth, which is where that youth participatory action research aspect comes in. So while we might, you know, collaborate with scientists, we might collaborate with academics, um, we're also very much focusing on what youth want to address um, and having them direct and lead the research themselves. Um, because oftentimes what happens is that like when we're doing like these kind of participatory action research, or even, or not even us, but like youth get, youth get taken advantage of a lot, especially when it comes to like scientific contributions and when it comes to, you know, like intellectual property. So what we want to do is we want to make sure that like youth know and are recognized um, for their achievements and their implementations in their community um, through that guidance and through that support um, and through that help. So 
Um, I really love uh, my job. I love uh, the aspect of like doing that research, but I also, again, with like the imagination aspect and cultivating wonder, I just love being able to like take students out on hikes um, for us to like, do like foraging tours, um, for us to do kind of like observational walks around the lake, um, to do this thing called eco mapping, where we talk about environmental vulnerability and you know environmental assets in our communities like that's super cool um and for it to be very much place-based because I think sometimes we get really bogged down in like the you know like the global and like which is really important you got to keep that lens in mind and that's something that we also talk about but to think really specifically like okay if you live on let's say like uh have you all been to San Francisco before you know it's really hilly yeah. So if you live like in like if you live at the end of a hill and again, we're not used to flooding, but, you know, sea level rise is, is, is an increasing problem. Flooding is happening. Like how is your region specifically going to be affected by sea level rise? How is it going to be impacted by flooding? Um, what building infrastructure is needed? Um, what like uh, community assets are needed in order for people to recover? Um, I strongly believe that like, you know, at a certain level, you can't help from certain natural disasters happen. You know, that's why we call them natural disasters. Like hurricane is going to happen um, in certain areas. Tornadoes are going to ha happen in certain areas. Wildfires, they're going to they're, they're happen. They're not supposed to happen at the scale that they're happening, but they are going to happen. Um, how do you recover? Recovery is like, I think the thing that oftentimes gets neglected in the conversation because, I mean, again, I, and I keep using this as an example because it's just unfortunately like a really like a uh, prime example of this. I mean, New Orleans, New Orleans really isn't the same after Katrina. Um, and a lot of that had to do with recovery. Um, a lot of that had to do with private companies coming in, buying up land, you know, pushing people out. Um, it had to do with a lot of people losing their homes, you know, a lot of people dying, um, a lot of that cultural memory getting erased. Um, and so how how are we, you know, like thinking about that and also thinking about, you know, like uneven um, impacts of climate all within kind of like a classroom setting. <laughs> That's interesting. I, I was just in New Orleans and, um, you know, I'd been there obviously before Katrina and uh, a friend of mine said, look, when you're there, go and look at, look for this particular, you know, cafe in this place uh, just uh, to the east of the French Quarter. And uh, that was my favorite place to be and so on. And so we went and looked and it is a, structure that is still under repair all these years later and i think it opens uh, episodically but uh, that and as you say the potholes and the the infrastructure that has not been restored is very apparent yeah well and the way in which we when things get broken down we can't go back to the way things were. Mm -hmm. So what we can do, I, I'm really drawing, you know, Terry Tempest Williams wrote that book on finding beauty in a broken world in which she used that word mosaic to say, we can't put the fragments back together to, to recreate what we had, but we can put them together to create something new and very beautiful out of the fragments, you know, re reweaving the world, recreating that world but with a desire to restore the relationships mm -hmm. that are that are right. I, I was struck by your um, Nurturing the Next Generation essay, which I think is about your work with the Mycelium Youth Network, mm -hmm. and in which you said 45% of youth aged 16 to 25 say that their feelings about climate change impact their everyday daily lives. Mm -hmm. And... I was also struck by the story you told about coming to this place where you were teaching had when we were under COVID lockdown, we were teaching online and you had just a series of tiles on the screen and you started talking about the difference between dirt and soil. <laughs> and, and you said dirt is displaced soil. It's not alive. You can't plant a productive garden. But soil is, is alive, brimming with microorganisms and nutrients, giving way to life. And, and you said then a couple of your high schoolers turned their cameras on going, really? Is that right? Just that moment of, of that story in your essay really speaks to me, that power of storytelling that is um, what your life is so dedicated to. Um, the difference between dirt and soil um 
And then how you your observation later that um, there's a lot going on in the soil underneath that we can't see that is um, bubbling and perking along. And I think the other piece I wanted to ask you just real quickly about with your work with um, the Mycelium Youth Network is, I think in some place I read that you do traditional ecological knowledge, which to me is a place of um, deep wisdom that needs that that you're tapping. And I just. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think that my relationship to TEK, traditional ecological knowledge, um, very much was facilitated through Mycelium Youth Network because we are a um, Black and um, Indigenous and Latin um, like run organization primarily. Um, I would say that like my relationship to TEK is very much through like kind of like a uh, Black insurgent lens. And I want to like differ that from some Native American forms of TEK because I think sometimes, you know, like they, they get like appropriated um, and used in a very like um, un, the, in a, in a very di like disrespectful way, honestly, you know, that doesn't like give um, uh, props and uh, credit to, you know, the people who are, um, who are most knowledgeable about that. Um, so just wanted to say that. And then also like think about, you know, uh, I, I love, I love science. I love discovery. I love like, you know, like exploration. I love experiments. Um, I love like collecting with students, but I also recognize that sometimes of some, some of these like scientific, especially Western science, some of these Western scientific frameworks are very limiting. Um, and so one of the reasons that we do TEK um, is to expand and open students' eyes to the ways in which their ancestors and their contemporaries um, are envisioning and imagining um, research, um, you know, um, non-extractivist uh, means of, you know, like collecting samples and, and materials, you know, like very, the power of observation, um, things like that. Um, and so my background is very much in thinking about what are different ways, especially out West, what are different ways, because again, because it's so place-based, what are ways that Black migrants, um, whether they were, they came as enslaved folks, whether they came as maroons, um, cowboys, farmers, um, indentured servants, um, even incarcerated, um, you know, persons, what are different ways that they learned how to work with their environment? Did I answer the question? I just, I want to make yeah. sure. <laughs> yes, yeah, okay. And uh, sort of threading through the essays, I know that um, Dean had, I think you had some questions on one of your other articles on the jungle and the garden and that I'll let, I'll let Dean ask his question, but. Well, before, before I get to that one, uh, you, you mentioned incarceration and, and one of your articles uh, really focuses on that sort of connection between um, uh, what damage has been done to our climate and our environment and and its relationship to the me the manner in which we uh, approach and ex be excessive incarceration. Um, mm. But and you and you talk about an example of uh, someone who, uh, within the prison system, uh, took on uh, a coal-fired plant being proposed nearby, mm. um, and I just found that to be a, a striking. Uh, example of uh, you know that that relationship between two very significant impacts mm -hmm. of, of uh, colonial history um, and the way we do things together I, I don't know if you want to comment more on that but it was just interesting to me yeah so that particular example so I this is this is an article that I wrote when I was at Yale School of the Environment I was writing for Yale Environment Review and what we do is the purpose of it is to take um, scientific articles and kind of just like break them down a little bit more so that um, um, people who might not have that background um, can access and understand and interpret that information. And so this was based off of an article written by David Pello, um, who has an amazing book called like, what is like critical environmental justice that I highly recommend that everybody read. Um, definitely a little bit more of a difficult read. Um, but again, this is why I always encourage like book clubs, collective reading, you know, like we help each other understand things. Um, but he was um, specifically talking about how 
um, it's almost kind of like, you know, what came first, chicken or the egg? Um, high rates of policing in Black communities or high rates of environmental harm. Um, and oftentimes these two things like feed into each other, um, particularly as it relates to incarcerated people. Oftentimes um, with incarcerated people, um, there is, you know, EPA has an EJ committee, they have a section. A lot of incarcerated people don't get that representation. They can't report like EJ violations um, in uh, the facilities that they're being held in. And um, they can, in some facilities, they can report OSHA violations because technically they are workers, uh, which is why um, cross-collaboration between incarcerated individuals um, and non-incarcerated individuals is so important because the way that this um, uh, person who was incarcerated was able to get enough attention was, again, organizing within um the facility and then also connecting with people who are outside so as soon as you know like people start to get word um and, and and they're like oh wait i live in close proximity to this too like this is like this is also impacting my health finding those connections um are super super important um especially for people who might not have as much social capital um and ability to and honestly and just honestly ability to complain like i think there's like this idea that like if you're incarcerated like you deserve everything that happens to you while you're incarcerated and it's like a form of just kind of like social abandonment which is really gross um and also i think let's let's say let's say that incarceration happens because it's supposed to like rehab people to me that defeats the purpose if you're just making people even sicker um so uh I think you know that 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 article I think um, is really important because I think it opens our eyes to how um, environmental harm is like a is a, also a form of criminalization. It's basically saying like, oh, like this is happening to you because you deserve it, um, which is like really messed up. So, yeah. Laurie Laurie mentioned uh, the other article, uh, which I found very. Uh, affecting uh, where the jungle and the garden meet um, in which you uh, explore as the journal said uh, how colonization cultivated a world that prefers the garden to the jungle it's time to restore the jungle and I'm I don't know if you can do it justice in the conversation it's so dense with information and meaning but but can you try yeah, absolutely. So um, I hear this metaphor invoked a lot. And like, the, this is like such a layered. Because again, we are history enduring, we're living history, right? So there's like so much history and so much um, ideology behind this separation. I think the best way to start is just kind of thinking about this very, um, back to kind of like the age, the age of enlightenment, where even though there's like this, um, move away from kind of like this very like I don't want to say medieval but like a form of Christianity that's like, like very um uninterested in discovery um I think sometimes we learn a little inaccurately about this transition um in high school if you go over it in high school whereas like oh enlightenment was kind of like oh my god this rejection of Christianity no it was just kind of like a different form of it um it was take it was basically taking like oh there's like evidence in the bible that i think it's like a story of like cain like cain not no no not not um it's like the guy who uh he's dark-skinned and the reason that he's dark-skinned is because he's being punished um sorry, i'm a little i'm a little rusty but um, <laughs> basically using this justification of colonizing and civilizing groups of people and in doing so, there's this association with darkness or undesirable populations as wild, as uninhabitable, as um, even like like um, that that book, Heart of Darkness, does like a really great, you know, like kind of like um, is a good example of this. You know, um, this is an untamable landscape, um, but actually needs to be tamed in order for it to be productive, in order for the people to be civilized in it, in order for, you know, like... Um, uh, again, pick up the white man's burden and and, and we're going to like civilize all these people. Um, come to find out <laughs> now, you know, upon reflection, that when this happens, it actually destroys biodiversity. Um, it impacts land use. 
Um, and, you know, it's, it's a basically a form of cultural genocide. Um, I think if we think about, you know, like land and people as interwoven, interacting, I mean, like what you do to people, what is what you do to land, vice versa. So basically taking this jungle, trying to whittle it down to this garden, um, which is not to say that, you know, like um, uh, indigenous folks globally had various forms of gardens, you know, various forms of cultivars, but we're specifically kind of thinking about the garden as this like very manicured, um, very like, um, what am I trying to say? Very like, um, very manicured, very like, like these are the plots, very privatized form um, of gardening that is prioritized. And then anything outside of that um, is like uncivilized. Uh, and so oftentimes, this rhetoric um, and this ideology gets perpetuated um, in the way that we think about people in the global South, um, particularly um, as a lot of people in the global South and also, you know, like communities, um, disenfranchised communities in the global North. The reason that these places are having such horrible climate impacts is because they are uncivilized. They don't know how to recover. They don't know how to cultivate the land. Like, and, and, and then again, and it's like this kind of like self-perpetuating idea that you're just doomed from get, um, which is very racist um, and very classist and very xenophobic. Um, and then, you know, especially as we see a lot more um, climate refugees coming to places in the global north and maybe not so much um, America, although I will say, I think um, even though the, the the concept of a climate refugee is relatively recent if you look at a lot of the reasons that people are migrating i would argue that it is as much political and social as it is environmental as well um uh, especially like in places in like central america uh, people from sub-saharan africa who are moving um up to uh, or getting stuck you know at the moroccan border but trying to like move um into Europe, and especially um, people in um, Polynesian islands um, who are like kind of like for whose islands might, you know, might be underwater, you know, in our in our lifetime. Um, and then there's like this idea, oh, well, they're going to bring all of their problems to our land. So we got to keep them out. Um, and so it really it's just it's a form of so social ostracization. It's a form of violence. Um, it's a form of like rewriting history. Um, and it's a form of like not recognizing that the reason <laughs> that people are having all of these problems is because of colonization. It's not because, you know, Europe or America is somehow so much better and so much more resilient and so much more able to like um, recover. Um, it's because of these perpetuating harms. Yeah. But one of my questions was going to be what was to ask you to name the common roots of systemic racism and the climate crisis, but I think you just did a really good job of doing that. You know, the co-opting of a, a religious impulse in really destructive ways, the, the, the ways in which we think it's okay to extract and manipulate and use uh, human bodies, the way in which we think it's okay to extract and manipulate and use the climate or to use the earth and the climate that comes from that common impulse of just treating the other as an object, as a thing, instead of as a precious being in and of its own right. We heard recently Catherine Hayhoe, who speaks a lot about climate change, say climate change is nothing less than, um, let me try this again. <laughs> Maybe Dean can help me with it. I, I actually wrote climate change is nothing less than the failure to love. Mm -hmm. Nothing less than the failure to love and the ways in which um, that colonial enterprise has created this mass tangle. I mean, just our, our systems are so tangled up. Mm. All of these different forms of social injustice and environmental injustice. And I feel like what you're trying to do and the imperative of our times is trying to untangle this massive entanglement so that we can start reweaving connections and restoring um, our relationships with the land and with each other um, in ways that allow for the flourishing of life for all. 
Mm-hmm. I just, you're naming that, that desire to keep everything close and sterile and insular and instead of open and wild and biologically diverse and therefore um, able to thrive. Mm-hmm. So that uh, Dean and I both, Dean, Dean texted me and said, you got to read this, re- make sure you read this one essay that it speaks to that mm-hmm. place where all of us are wrestling to, um, to untangle the, this massive enmeshment and, and try to, f- to free each other towards a completely different way of living mm-hmm. changing our life ways so your work is really speaks to that um to that piece and so much and you had talked too about envisioning freedom then as a place during the web- webinar and that envisioning you asked actually asked us to um to start envisioning um But one of the things I wanted to notice was you, your slide you put up, not everyone has the same encounters with nature and cutting humans off from nature is a colonial enterprise. It pri- prioritizes productivity and extraction of labor over reciprocity. That beautiful word reciprocity, um, when I first heard you, you know, Robin Wall Kimmerer's um, and other people are just really taking that re- reciprocity as a, an antidote to the way our systems um, are so broken. Mm-hmm. So, and then you all, and you also talked about climate, you know, reparations and asked us to spend five minutes envisioning reparations. I think you've been touching on this, but I am wondering about just giving you the space to share your vision of what climate and racial reparations would look like and to share a vision of the world that that you're working um, with such passion, mm. to with the hope that it can be brought into being. Wow. Or uh, maybe this not. Is something, yeah. No, no, no. I can't. I was just like, it's something that I, I think about like daily. And honestly, like I think about like so I have a I have a newsletter. Um, and after like the atmospheric storms, it was like kind of wild because like I was, I have to drive into work because, um, public infrastructure in Bay area is we have BART, we have buses. It's kind of lacking. Like, it's like wild that like from where I live, the school that I teach at in SF is about nine miles. Um, if I drive, it takes me like 20 minutes. If the traffic isn't bad, it takes me about 20, 25 minutes to get in. Um, if I take BART, I have to take three buses um, mm-hmm. and it takes me like an hour or five minutes um, to get in. So I'm driving because I'm perpetually running late and some I got to work on, but I am always running late. Um, and this is during like the, the rainstorms and I see the worst traffic that I've been in. I think po- possibly because, you know, people are trying to drive a little safer because it's like there's a lot of rain and, and wind out. But I look up and it says... Um, uh like something I, I can't remember exactly what it says it's like weather conditions bad um please avoid travel this is on a wednesday like you know when people have work like you know when people have to like pick up their kids and nobody at these workplaces and none of the schools are being closed like none of you know nobody's saying like don't come into work like everybody who's like in like you know who's heading in is heading into work um and so I'm thinking like, wow, wow, we have lost our way. Um, like, like real bad. Like we're asking people to come in during like a storm. Um, and I mean, like hell people lost power, um, property got damaged, cars got damaged, some people people died, you know, and, and it's still like avoid travel, but you know, like if your boss says you gotta come in, you gotta come in. Um and so when I think about stuff like that, I'm just like sitting in my car and I'm thinking like, wow. How awesome would it be to have completely electrified public transit? How awesome would it be if we just slowed down? I don't know, like, if y'all are familiar with, like, kind of just, like, the degrowth movement, but just, like, thinking about, like, why are we working so much all the time? I'm very lucky and I'm very blessed that I I only work, like, a four-day work week. That's not standard. 
um, at a lot of places. In fact, people are oftentimes getting, um, not getting paid for overtime. Um, I think about, but I think about the dissolution of a lot of these, I think really big. I think about the dissolution of a lot of these systems that we've come to accept as normal um, that really are um, in, in very many ways unnatural. Um, and I think about, uh, I, I would love to see the um, uh, halt of fossil fuel use in my lifetime. Um, that's a very, uh, I think, honestly, even when I'm working with my students, sometimes I'm like, yes, it's great that I can show you how to build your own air filter, like DIY air filter. It's great that I can show you how to protect yourself against indoor air pollution. It's great that I can um, show you about how like the coast has changed um, over the um, past few years and how we can build resilience to that. Um, I, I honestly, in my heart of hearts, believe that like, like, like halting fossil fuel use, like that's the biggest thing that needs to happen um, for any like really major change. Um, and I think that that's something that's difficult for people to envision again, where that imagination aspect comes in because we have maintained a very specific status quo and, a, and such a heavy reliance on fossil fuels. Um, and I guess even to that point, like even if we, science has been said that we could switch over to renewables, completely renewables at any given time. I would push it a step further, like, do we need to maintain this level of productivity, even if we can with renewables? It Like, do we really need to? Um, so yeah, that's kind of, that's my biggest thing. My biggest thing is just like, just get, God, get rid of, get rid of fossil fuels. And that impacts so many other industries too. Like as someone who like, I, I love clothes. I love to shop. Like that is, that is like my, like retail therapy is my therapy, but I'm also very acutely aware about how many fabrics are made from petroleum products, you know, um, how cheap clothes are, how many clothes end up in landfills. Um, I think about, you know, how much plastic we have in grocery stores, all of that petroleum, you know, so um, that's why I think that like halting our fossil fuel use like that, that's a really important major change because it touches like really all aspects of society. In our, in our uh, webinars uh, and the ones we're planning for the future, uh, you know, we have really come up against this notion that while um, we spend a lot of time talking about how individual behavior uh, of folks in our audience might change, what they might do individually, the realization that that's, some, someone said, maybe only 25% of what really needs to be done. And the other 75% is changes that are systematic and that, in fact, will help people then adjust their own behavior because of how systems uh, adjust um, what they produce and and how we operate within our communities and so on. Um, and so I, I think um, the notion of fossil fuels particularly has risen to the surface for us as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. um, I, I noticed that we're uh, coming up on about an hour's time. Uh, Lori, I want to give you one more opportunity to uh, get in a question that you may have. And then I want to close uh, with a um, um, question about, about hope. Mm -hmm. So here's the thing that we haven't mentioned about Ashia is that she's a phenomenal poet. Um, she, and just to remind you, her book Heirloom is going to be published this spring, so keeping an eye out for that. Um, one of the things that you said when you brought uh, the webinar to our climate um, participants was a section you had to kind of quickly skip over, but I want to come back and say, um, ask you to say more about poetry as a witness. I mean, you've been talking about, we talk about these systemic changes that requires also a change of heart, that slow, that intuition to slow down and be, to rethink what makes um, life vibrant mm -hmm. and alive. So my last question is, could you say more about poetry as a witness and wondering if you want to share a poem or a part of a poem as witness that speaks to so much of what you have been sharing with us today mm -hmm. or just whatever you want to share about poetry and yeah I think I'll combine actually the last two questions the one about poetry and about hope and because poetry kind of gives me hope um 
which is funny because I so much of my poetry I think poetry also you know it's like it's like a, a emotional dump for me in some ways because a lot of my poetry deals with um waste and um loss and grief uh but in that you know is also an, an ability to like uh to provide myself like space to mourn um and to think you know like more seriously about like the things that I do desire for the future um and so I have a poem called life cycle which is just kind of like thinking about um just thinking about like waste uh and and how um just how how uh interconnected we are oftentimes by our waste <laughs> uh, and and by our trash um and so I have a um a, a piece or a, a little section that I'll read here um America is a landfill underwater bloodline brined it's soured my neighbor pours the leftover liquid from a pot of greens into his garden billowing green stink arises stains room for ripening Black folks despise waste. And so I'm thinking a lot about, you know, how uh, oftentimes, especially during like heavy redlining periods, Black neighborhoods were de were designated landfills. Um, but even in spite of that, like we, we like, we took our own waste or our own, you know, like what would be trash and like recycled it back into the earth. Like in, in gardens, especially like if you have leftover water that you've boiled from vegetables, if you let it cool down first and then you put it back into your garden, you're actually putting nutrients back into your soil. And so you're rehabbing um, the soil as well. And you're also, you know, like um, it, it impacts your um, crops. And then also like thinking, you know, culturally too, about how, um, I remember like when I would like, I, I was a picky eater when I was a kid. And I remember when I would sit with my grandma, arms crossed, and she was just, be, she was like, we don't waste food in this, you know, like, so you, you, you might not have it uh, for lunch, but you might have it for dinner. You might have it for breakfast the next day. Um, and that was just kind of like a lesson in um, sustainability. It really was. It was, I mean, it was a lesson. And also, you know, from her background, growing up very impoverished, and not wasting food but you know that relationship i think is really important um the way that we think about you know um waste and what is discarded what is discarded doesn't really get discarded a lot of the time sometimes it just sits there um in perpetuity so um i think sometimes too about like hope this is gonna stay with me i think sometimes too about hope as like a landfill like, what are you, like, accumulating? What kind of experiences are you accumulating? What is, like, going to stick? What is going to, like, persist? Um, and when you think about, you know, like, what is going to persist? What is going to, like, continue to be? Um, I think then you find really cool ways of disrupting um, that paradigm. And fertilizing the next generation. Exactly. Nurturing the next generation. <laughs> I want to stay on the question of hope for a minute. Um, because there's so much about our growing climate crisis that can induce despair. And particularly from the vantage point of, of those that are most affected by its consequences. And, you know, we've taken on as our North American climate justice team's mission to promote action by those least affected, but most responsible for climate crisis, but we often feel discouraged as well. And you had mentioned the, uh, the other day when we chatted that a, a lot of what gives you hope is your work with youth in the uh, youth network. Uh, can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, thinking about that percentage that was mentioned earlier, like, you know, 45% of youth like think that climate change impacts their everyday life. Um, we still out here living though, um, you know, and um, that's beautiful and that's awesome. Um, we're still making memories. We're still like, you know, um, reaching cultural hurdles. Like we're still inventing culture, you know, we're still making music, we're still making art. Um, and that's an important part of like memory keeping, you know, like um, our, our archive and um, there's like a, there's like a, it's a black proverb, but I like, you know, I, I heard it in my family first, but all I got to do is stay black and die, you know? It, it, and uh, I think about that as like, oh, not as like even nihilistic, but like, 
yeah, like, you know, I got me, I got my, I got my skin, I got this heritage, I got this, like, um, I got this power and, and tapping into that is super important. Um, and I see youth tapping into that too. Uh, I see them, you know, building ways of new, new ways of relating to each other. I see them disrupting um, a lot of the things that we consider normal. Um, even though sometimes it gets on my nerves, like um, in class, like sometimes students just like, they'll just like be chilling, you know, like, and like, they're disrupting this idea that you have to be kind of like, you know, like focused sitting in a classroom, like, you know, for eight hours a day. Um, when we go out to the garden, like just watching their eyes light up, you know, and, and just being able to like, you know, that's what school should be. It should be, you know, like a place of like inquiry and discovery and, um, they're demanding that. And that's, uh, that's really awesome. Uh, and it gives me hope. And, you know, I think also it helps that when you're outside, oftentimes you see the sun and yeah, the power of sunlight on your mood is just, <laughs> it's wild. So <laughs> on that note, Shia, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and to share all of the uh, things you've shared with us. Uh, there's so much to learn from you. Oh, thank you. And likewise. Thank you. For our audience, I, I would just encourage you as an audience to dive deeper into Ashia's work, which you can find on their website. Uh, and that website, a lowercase, is ashiajani, all one word, dot com. A-S-H-I-A-A-J-A-N-I. -A 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 All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Project Zion Podcast. Project Zion Podcast is a ministry of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines. Thank you.